A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. It's always good to uh, be with Emmanuel Anglican. Uh, yeah, I was thinking after walking through the intense humidity and heat outside that you know, maybe in like your promo literature, like you could boost like summer attendance even more by saying, you know, air conditioned, right? <laughs> it's like walking into the building was like, oh, that's right. It's AC in here. So a lot of uh, older church buildings do not have that blessing. The church I pastored on the Upper West Side did not have that blessing. And I don't pastor that church anymore. I don't know if those two are connected, but, you know, may maybe. Uh, but it's always, it's always a delight uh, to, to worship with you. Uh, last Sunday, I did something I haven't done for quite a while. I got out of the shower. I stepped on the scale, and I weighed myself. It had been months. Matter of fact, as I was thinking about it, I think the last time I did that was after I ran the marathon last year. So that was November, right? So it's, it's been a while. And I would see the scale in there and be like, eh, I don't need to look at that. Yeah, I could see myself in the mirror, so I, I have a good sense of like, oh, well, I'm not at like marathon training weight, but I'm sure I'm fine. Well, then wasn't I surprised to look at that number staring back at me on the scale, thinking, wow, I didn't realize that the gravitational pull has increased here on planet Earth. Um, I knew I had put on a couple of pounds, but frankly, I was like, ah, it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with where I am. I'm content with the way things are going. And frankly, I don't really want to know. And so I'm not going to step on the scale until last week. I didn't like what I saw. Now, I open with that story because it illustrates a critical point in today's gospel reading, this passage you see on page at the top of page nine, this is where I'm, I'm going to be spending uh, most of my time for the minutes that I have. This is an amazing passage that closes with one of the most tender expressions found in all of Scripture. One of those verses that, uh, if you followed Jesus for some time, you've no doubt heard sermons preached on, right? Uh, and perhaps you've already committed it to memory. In, in many traditions, this verse is included in the comfortable words that are affirmed uh, when we're assured of our forgiveness of sins. It's these uh, words, come to me, right? Come to me. It's quoted in churches and hospitals and funeral homes because of the hope it offers. In fact, a friend of mine, Dan Forrest, is a renowned choral composer. Uh, he incorporated it into his best-known work, Requiem for the Living, which you can listen to it on Apple Music for free. Uh, if you look for it, look for the one the Providence Singers recorded. It's the best of the recordings, in my 
humble opinion. Um, but it, it is a requiem. It, it's mostly in Latin. Uh, it, 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 it contains the Gloria, it contains the Agnus Dei, it contains the Sanctus. Uh, but the, 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 the last uh, movement in the piece Dan wrote is Lux Eterna, which is that prayer, let perpetual light shine upon them. A uh, requiem is a, a service for the dead, right? Uh, in, in memorial. The whole thing's in Latin until in that last movement, there's a point where the choir just holds a note and a single tenor voice begins to sing over top of it in English, come unto me, all ye who labor. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I say it's one of the most tender expressions found not only in the words of Jesus or in the Gospels, but in the entirety of Scripture itself. And yet, it is at the same time juxtaposed with a mystifying statement about God. One that you find at the beginning of this Gospel reading, where Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. And so just before this incredibly tender offer of rest, Jesus introduced the thorny question of predestination. And he doesn't introduce it simply as a philosophical category or for a theological debate. He introduces it in the words of a prayer. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden and revealed. The, the way the passage breaks down, these few verses break down, first you have this prayer, an exaltation in verses 25 and 26. Then you have an explanation in verse 27, followed by that invitation, come to me. And by putting these two statements side by side, this mystifying statement about God and this tenderest of invitations. Jesus introduces us to consider to, to the massive question, is God really fair? And is that invitation of verse 28 really for me? I mean, frankly, you, you may have felt this when we were reading the psalm a moment ago on page 6. After all of these statements about the Lord is good to all, He's merciful to all. It's almost jarring to come to that verse at the end when we read, the Lord preserves all those who love him, which sounds like the rest of the psalm. And then he says, but he will destroy all the ungodly. Did that get caught in your throat? It got caught in mine. It's like, whoa. It's the same question. The same challenge. Is God fair? So that's the question I want to address. In order to do that, we have to ask three questions about this statement Jesus makes, that he's hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Uh, the three questions that we need to ask are what, how, and why. Okay, that, and that's going to be the bulk of my message today. So let's start with that first question. What is it that God the Father has hidden? If you look carefully there at verse 25, Jesus says, uh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these 
things, a plural demonstrative program, uh, pronoun. There you go, your Sunday morning grammar lesson. I know you were waiting for it, and there it was. Whenever we use a demonstrative pronoun like this or that, these or those, we're pointing to something that we've been talking about or something that's in proximity, right? What are these things that Jesus is talking about? Well, if you look back not only in chapter 11 of Matthew, but all the way back to chapter 10, because that's really where this whole section begins. The beginning of chapter 10 goes all the way through chapter 11. What you find in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10, is that Jesus sent his disciples on a mission. And in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were sent to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now there's a reason for that, which we'll come to in a moment. But what they were to do was to announce, chapter 10, verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. And with that, Jesus instructed them to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, to cast out demons. All as a way of displaying to the people of Israel that the kingdom has indeed come. See, here's signs of the kingdom. In the sick being healed, and the dead being raised, and the outcasts, the lepers being brought back into community. And the spiritually oppressive powers cast out and sent away. <clears throat> now, as for the proof, or the reason that they could say the kingdom has come, I mean, obviously these are people... If you don't know this time period, these are people oppressed by the Roman Empire. They are under the thumb of Caesar. There was no throne in Jerusalem where a Jewish king sat. So how could they say that the kingdom is here? They could say it because the king had come. The promised king, the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus. The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king of heaven, the son of David, the Messiah, is at hand. But remarkably, in the long instructions of chapter 10, it becomes clear that people are going to oppose the disciples. Chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus gives them this instruction. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Well, why, why, would, why would anyone not receive this great news that a better kingdom, the promised kingdom, is here? And yet Jesus doubles down and goes farther in chapter 10, verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. I mean, that's It's jarring. You've got this really good message that a better day has arrived. You would think that someone shows up to town, starts healing all the sick people, that people would rejoice. That those who'd been estranged be brought back into community, everyone would be happy. And yet there's something here. What we find is that there is opposition to both the message and the work. Jesus anticipates it in chapter 10 when he sends them out. But then chapter 11 starts to record the opposition that he and the disciples were starting to face. It starts with, of all people, at the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist. His cousin, the forerunner, who announced that the Messiah was coming. 
And yet now John the Baptist is asking, well, are you really the Messiah? Because this doesn't look like a kingdom like I was hoping. Like I was thinking military might push out Rome, you know, kind, kind, similar maybe to, to uh, the Ukrainians right now, the way they feel about getting the Russians out of their country so they can rule their land. Like that's the kind of Messiah I'm thinking of, Jesus. Throw out Rome and reestablish our kingdom. And then later in chapter 11, more explicitly, Jesus says, This generation is full of people who look at the son of David, and rather than seeing the blessings of the kingdom, they instead criticize him as a glutton and a drunkard. This isn't the kind of king we want. He's hanging out with sinners. And so Jesus condemns a whole bunch of cities in chapter 11, right before this passage. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon, Capernaum. And said that the day of judgment would be worse for them because of all they had seen. And that's when Jesus says, Father, you have hidden these things. What are these things? These things are the message about the kingdom and the identity of the king. That's what it is. That's what these things are that he's hidden. You've hidden the message of the kingdom and the identity of the king. Which leads to the second question, how has God hidden those things? This is where you get into all sorts of debates about predestination and determinism and Calvinism and Arminianism and all that. It's not my interest today. I can theorize, I can suggest how I understand those topics, but that question, frankly, is a couple degrees above my pay grade, especially as a guest preacher in someone else's church. But I do think the text itself suggests an answer. We don't have to philosophize or theologize in order to understand what Jesus is saying here. How has God hidden these things? Well, Jesus gives us a clue. The clue to how God has done it is in the descriptions of the people to whom those things are hidden or revealed. On the one hand, he says, I praise you that you revealed these things to little children. Certainly that could be taken literally. The five-year-olds, the four-year-olds with their little backpacks up here. So cute. It's adorable. Certainly could literally be talking about little children who understood in their five-year-old way the message of the kingdom and the identity of the king. But really, Jesus is not getting at the literal here. He's getting at the metaphorical. What, what is the quality that a little child has that he's commending in those who have seen who he really is? It's a posture of faith. It's a posture of trust. If you're a little more cynical, like I tend to be, you might look at that and say, well, it's a posture of credulity, like you'll believe anything. I mean, you don't believe in the tooth fairy, do you? That's why the cynical would look at a little child and say, well, that's not faith, it's credulity. But Jesus is picking up on that quality of trust. And maybe also a quality of innocence, not 
in the sense, in the theological sense of innocence, as if they're unaffected by Adam's fall, but they haven't been jaded by life, like us, old people. Not all children, but most children, have not been subject to such regular and constant abuse that they trust no one and nothing. Tragically, some have experienced that. These are the kinds of people to whom God has revealed the kingdom and the king. But conversely, he has hidden them from the wise and understanding. Now, friends, this is remarkable. Jesus, and let me just kind of state it negatively first. I think where we might go in our mind when we read a passage like this is not actually, I think, where Jesus is going. He is not, in this passage, condemning the secular elites. Okay, he's not saying, God, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the writers of the New York Times and the faculty at Columbia and Harvard. You've revealed them to simple folk like us. It's not what's going on here. So if you write for the New York Times or you're a faculty member at Columbia, don't worry, just yet. What is he saying? It's remarkable, friends. Because those words, the wise and understanding, are actually heralded throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Bible. They are heralded as the goal, the practical goal of true belief in God, that you would become wise. There are whole books about this in the Old Testament, like Proverbs. And not just a, a single book like Proverbs. There are psalms that are wisdom psalms. There's a whole genre of the Old Testament called wisdom literature. Like this is the pinnacle of one's experience with God, supposedly, is to have wisdom, to have understanding. Yet Jesus is saying, you've actually hidden them from the wise. I say he's not talking about the secular elites. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 10, it's clear he's not talking about the secular world, the Gentiles, or even the religiously and ethnically mixed Samaritans. He's talking about the religious, his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters in particular, the people who knew God's law. And it was these ones, the ones who claimed wisdom and understanding through God's revelation. These are the ones who rejected the message of the kingdom and denied the identity of the king. How, how in the world could that happen? Frankly, friends, it's because of their growth in wisdom and understanding. I see so clearly, I understand so much, this is not it. This is not the Messiah. They are so reliant on what they've been able to acquire by all of their religious knowledge and instruction that they refuse to acknowledge that the real king has come. And friends, this is especially true of the religious leaders who have worked out a kind of truce with the Roman powers such that Pharisees and Sadducees alike, the religious conservatives and the religious liberals, while neither of them have ultimate power, they've cozied up to power, and have taken comfortable positions from which they can do their thing and live their lives and make people pay tithes and do all the things we tell them to do and live off their cushy salaries. 
This message about the Messiah is incredibly inconvenient for them. It it threatens to undo their whole system. See, friends, by Jesus praising God that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them instead to little children, he's not taking aim at the elite. He's taking aim at the religious, the people who are so sure that they are right that when Jesus and his disciples actually show up, they say, well, he's just a drunk. He's a friend of prostitutes, and and you know what that means. This, friends, this is what begins to resolve the question of God's fairness, of God hiding these things. Jesus is not saying that God has put these truths in a corner somewhere and put big blankets over it so that three-quarters of the world would grope around never able to find it. Jesus is saying it's plain to see. And it's hidden from these religious types because they would not humble themselves to see it. They had too much to lose if they acknowledged it was there. They could see the sick being healed, the dead being raised, the outcast being brought back into community, but they shut their eyes to it. It was hidden precisely because they were so caught up in their own wisdom and their own understanding. That's why it was hidden from them. What Jesus was announcing, what he was doing, did not fit the way they wanted the world to be. They wanted to maintain their comfortable relationship with the empire, so they did not want to see what was obvious to anyone who was looking. Just like it's been plain to me for months that my weight was going up, but I didn't want to step on the scale. I didn't want to actually know. It was hidden from me because I did not want to humble myself to see it. And that, friends, brings us to the third question, which is why? Why has God hidden these things? Friends, he's hidden it to expose our arrogance, to expose how self-reliant we are. And how we we are so broken that we can actually use divine revelation to create a sense of superiority over other people. And in the worst cases, and in probably in more cases than we're even aware, we use that superiority to oppress and imprison other people whom Jesus came to set free. If we can't see it, Jesus is saying we've become blinded to his kingdom in the world. He's hidden these things in plain sight, but we're blinded by our own seeming wisdom and understanding. God is doing stuff in the world. God's kingdom is coming, and we don't have the eyes to see it. He hides it from us, and he hides it from us because of our arrogance. I'm the wise one. I'm the understanding one. I've got it all figured out. I know how this is all going to go down. And tragically, that arrogance becomes a tool to oppress and abuse other people. And beyond that, even existentially, there are those moments when you're on this path that deep in the middle of the night, you wonder if you've done enough to be accepted by this God that you've crafted in your own image. 
We think we're wise, and yet when Jesus shows up, we actually don't have the humility to see him because we're comfortable with the way our life is. We're comfortable with what we've already learned. We're comfortable with our own theologies. We're comfortable with the marginalized staying on the margins so that our little lives and our little churches can be nice and clean and respectable. Friends, that's why God hides it from us, to expose our arrogance. But friends, there is good news in this passage. And the good news in this passage actually is that there is a little child to whom God revealed these things. Someone who always had that posture of humility. Someone who always had that posture of trust. Someone who is always open to the work of the Spirit. Someone who never elevated his own will in a way that oppressed other people. But someone who constantly acquiesced to the will of God. He's the only one. No single one of us, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how godly we are, no matter how wise or understanding we are, whatever we think we might be, there's only one, and it's Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the true and greater little child of verse 25. Which is why verse 27 says that no one knows the Father except the Son, because he actually was the true and greater little child who had the humility to know what God was doing. And it's because Jesus is the only one who acted like that little child through his whole life, not credulous on the one hand, nor arrogant on the other. It's precisely because of that that no one knows the Father except the Son. He is the true little child. Friends, that's why he humbled himself to be born into poverty, to be born of a virgin, to be born into the scandal of a family dynamic. That's why he lived such a humble life because he was the real little child. We spend our days trying to assert ourselves to show how important we are, whether at work or in sports or in theater or in finance or in church. Jesus is the only one who lived the life of humble faith that we each have failed to live. And then at the end of his days, he died the death that both the religious and secular authorities wanted for him, death on a cross. It was the death that the religiously arrogant and the secular arrogant actually deserve because of our arrogance and its consequent oppression. He died under the crushing burden of our injustice and our sin in order to redeem us, to heal us, to make us new. And then, friends, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And in doing so, he broke the power of our religious arrogance. How can we, who live on this side of death, claim to be so wise and understanding We have only tasted the power of the resurrection. We have not experienced it in full, but Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has broken the power of our pride. He's broken the power of our insistence that we must be right, that I must be right. And by virtue of his resurrection, he has sent us his spirit. And his spirit now lives in little children like you and me. Little children who think we're big stuff sometimes. Little children who think we've got it figured out. And yet little children that he loves and continues to remind, we're not the Messiah. It's not our kingdom that's coming. This Jesus sent his spirit on little children like us so that in our everyday ways at work and at sport 
and in theater and in school and in finance and in church and in our homes and in our friendships. The Spirit is on us little kids to announce and welcome the righteous rule of God. And so yes, today, Jesus looks at you and says, come to me. You who labor to save yourself by your spiritual performance, come to me. You who are burdened by the weight of religious oppression, come to me. You who are heavy laden with your own sense of self-importance, come to me. Humble yourself so that you can see. Is your reason really enough? Is your experience really enough? Is your spirituality really enough? No, friends. These are all good gifts. They're horrible, deadly taskmasters. So lay down your religious arrogance and learn from Jesus what it is to be gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from Jesus what it is to be a little child. Let us pray. We do humble ourselves before you, confessing that there is far more we are blind to than we would care to admit. So much we're certain about that stems more from our own pride than it does actually from your love. And so, by your Spirit, heal us. Heal those places that you're revealing right now where we are arrogant and broken and proud and even oppressive. We pray that by your grace, even as we sang and affirmed a few moments ago, that by your grace we would build our lives upon your love. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.